Well, the song was very, very fitting. Um, like Jason said, where we're at in numbers is not yet jo Joshua leading the conquest into Canaan. Um, but I think something that may not be very well known about numbers is there's four military conquests uh, in the book. Um, and Moses in total fought five military battles. Um, the first is in Exodus with the Amalekites. And he didn't really fight so much as he just held up the rod. And as his arms were lowered, um, they would lose. And so they set two people side by side with Moses to hold his arms up while Joshua was fighting, leading the fight against the Amalekites. So we're in Numbers 31 and 32, and just a couple of big picture things really quick. You remember in the book of Numbers, they started the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai, and they don't actually leave Mount Sinai until chapter 10, when they celebrate their Passover of the second year. And after leaving Mount Sinai, they get to the border of Canaan initially in chapter 13 and 14. The spies who went in brought out a bad report and discouraged the entire nation from going in. And they got to a point where not only were they not willing to go in, but they were going to stone Moses to death. And so God stepped in, and in stepping in, he sentenced Israel to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until that entire first generation died away and a new generation would rise. And that's where we are. So that 40-year that period actually only encompasses Numbers 15 through 21. And you'd think that the entire book of Numbers, the entirety of it, would be that 40-year period. Um, but really we've been at the 40th year since chapter 2021-ish, where uh, Aaron um, died at the peak of Mount Hor uh, before the instance with Balaam trying to curse Israel. So from chapter 2021, 20, we've been in the 40th year. Israel, the entirety of that time, has been on the border of Moab. And what had happened in chapter 25 really sets up the events of these chapters. So in chapter 25, there was the sin of Peor. Balaam had been hired as a prophet by the king of Moab. Their names are really similar. You have Balak and Balaam. And Balak, the king of Moab, saw Israel on the border of his territory. Obviously, this is an incredible number of people. He knows they came out of Egypt and he's afraid of them, so he hired Balaam, a prophet of God, to curse the people. And God, over and over again, kept turning Balaam's attempts to curse Israel into blessing the nation and blessing them profusely. Not only blessing them in relation to the future, but promising that they would crush all of their enemies, including Moab. And as Balaam was unsuccessful, we find out later that what he had done is after all of these failed attempts, in his greed, he had advised Balak and the Midianites to invite Israel to sacrifice to their gods and commit sexual sin, which happened at Peor. In chapter 25, God sent a plague against the nation that killed thousands of Israelites. Phineas, the priest, stepped in, speared a couple through an Israelite and a Midianite woman. Uh, and the Midianite woman, her name was Cosby. In verse 8, her father is killed here. Her father was one of the kings of Midian. Um, and we noted in the reading that Balaam was also killed. But something I want to note is this battle did not need to happen, right? God's jealousy for his people 
Throughout his word, God shows his jealousy in multiple ways. But one of the ways that God shows his jealousy is his wrath. And God's fiercest wrath is rooted in his jealousy for his people. And so in chapter 25, God made an oath that he would take vengeance on the Midianites because of what they had done to his people. And I want to put into your mind, not only that this was unnecessary, but Moab and the Midianites, they would have known about Israel's reputation. They would have known about where they came from. They know about the God of Israel. They heard the blessings coming from Balaam. So none of these things are a secret. There's still the pillar of fire by night, the pillar of cloud by day. The God of Israel is visibly apparent. Where the nation came from is well known to the nations. And yet, despite all of these things, there was an attempt, this may may sound strange, to eradicate the nation. And if Phineas would not have stepped in, it was another instance where Israel was on the brink of complete collapse or destruction. And so I think we need to understand God's response of vengeance against the Midianites, that the Midianites had attempted to really commit a genocide against Israel, and in response, God is going to take vengeance on them by wiping out them as a nation. So 25, God vowed vengeance on the Midianites and shortly afterward now calls Israel um, to act on that vengeance. A really apparent thing, um, but may worth be stating, it may seem redundant, but this is the Lord's vengeance. This isn't Israel just deciding to do battle with another nation. This is something that belonged to God. God has the right to vengeance. And it's not as if he was just wildly sending Israel to destroy everybody and everything. But this had happened for a particular reason, right? And so this is God's vengeance that he was commanding the Israelites to participate in. Before we um, get back into chapter 31, I do want to mention something with 31 and 32. These chapters are kind of similar. Both of these chapters deal with Israel gaining plunder by military conquest. Both of these chapters end up with Moses being very angry with the nation because of either how they handled that conquest or a request that comes as a result of the conquest in chapter 32. So Moses becomes angry with the nation, but the nation listens to Moses. They resolve the conflict in both chapters. And in both chapters, there is a great amount of spoil that the nation gains as a result of these things. So chapter 31 is more physical plunder, and then chapter 32 is land uh, that greatly expanded the borders of, of Israel. So chapter 31, we're again dealing with uh, God's vengeance on the Midianites. So chapter 31, verse 2. I'll summarize the first 12 verses from the scripture reading. God tells, is, tells Israel that it's, again, time for that uh, oath to be fulfilled against Midianite, and Moses afterward be gathered to his people. Um, again, verse 3, they're to execute the Lord's vengeance. A thousand from each tribe would participate in, it, in this, so it would be a very controlled battle. In verse 6, Phineas would go along with the holy vessels and the trumpets. In chapter 10, they were to have two silver trumpets that would sound alarm for war. Chapter 19, they would have many vessels used for purification that they're going to use in this chapter. We're going to see them use those things. If they came into contact with dead bodies, which they will come into contact with dead bodies in this battle, everyone in battle would be unclean 
and separated from the camp for seven days, and they would need to use the water for purity and purification that was commanded in chapter 19. So there's many things from Numbers itself that are being utilized here um, in relation to the battle. So through verse 12, they end up conquering the Midianites. They burn their cities with fire. They take plunder and they bring everything back to the camp and back to Moses. And now I'm going to read verses 13 through 24 with how Moses responds to this. And here we see both purging and purifying. So I'm going to read 13 through 24. Moses and Eleazar the priests and all the leaders of the congregation went out to meet them outside the camp. Moses was angry with the officers of the army, the captains of thousands and the captains of hundreds who had come from service in the war. Moses said to them, Have you spared all the women? Behold, these caused the sons of Israel through the council of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor. And again, that's chapter 25. So the plague was among the congregation of the Lord. Now therefore kill every male among the little ones and kill every woman who has known man intimately. But all the girls who have not known man intimately spare for yourselves. And you camp outside the camp seven days. Whoever has killed any person and whoever has touched any slain, purify yourselves, you and your captives, on the third and on the seventh day. You shall purify for yourselves every garment and every article of leather and all the work of goat's hair and all the articles of wood. So that's kind of combining both Numbers 19 and some of the clean and unclean laws with clothing and vessels from the book of Leviticus that we've studied. Verse 21. Then Eleazar the priest said to the men of war who had gone to the battle, This is the statute of the law which the Lord has commanded Moses, only the gold and the silver, the bronze, the iron, the tin, and the lead. Everything that can stand the fire, you shall pass through the fire, and it shall be clean. But it shall be purified with the water for impurity, but whatever cannot stand the fire, you shall pass through the water. And you shall wash your clothes on the seventh day and be clean, and afterward you may enter the camp. So, Something interesting about this is, did Israel take God's vengeance far enough? They killed most of the people. But you notice why Moses is angry when he meets them in verse 15 and 16. That there were women who were guilty, who had been involved in the sin of Peor, who they had spared for themselves. And so Moses commands them not only to kill the women, but also the males among the children as well. And although that can be kind of difficult, you know, God commanding um, killing children in this instance, um, I think it's helpful to note that God's vengeance was not just about punishing the guilty here. It's about cutting off all influences, all ripple effects. And something to keep in mind is 1 Kings 14 would be an example of mercy extended to children. Um, So Jeroboam, was a king of Israel who had created idols in Bethel and Dan. He was a very wicked king. And in 1 Kings 14, one of his sons became sick and God made him sick. And what God told Jeroboam is he was sick and he was going to die because something good was found in him toward the Lord. Therefore, he would die. And the idea of 1 Kings 14 is God was sparing this good child from the influences of Jeroboam and the opportunity to grow older and follow in the steps of Jeroboam as he got got older. And besides all that, God's judgment is not just from a temporal view, but again from an eternal view and the ripple effect view of how things will affect the future. Someone I talked to about this um, mentioned with young males or children 
that it could be that they would be influenced by their past as they got older and feel a sense of vengeance that they would need to take on Israel to uh, take vengeance for the sake of their fathers and their families that were killed by Israel. Beyond all that, it would certainly send a message to the rest of the Canaanites and the nations. Um, Another ripple effect of this could be that God was sending a message that would protect Israel from their enemies in the future, wanting to instigate unnecessary battles against them. So cutting off influences and ripple effects. And then there's the purifying laws that they would need to follow as well. Why would that be helpful? With the battle that they had fought involving killing children, would that be traumatizing? I would imagine that inescapably that would be extremely traumatizing. I think it was meant to be traumatizing, and God understood how traumatizing that would be. And I do wonder if a part of these laws was not just that there was a religious aspect to coming into contact with the dead, but that these laws gave the people involved in battle time to process what had happened and to be equipped to bring those things to the Lord and to know that God could handle the trauma, the grief, the emotional difficulty that came with fighting in that battle. And then 25 to 54, they divide the spoil. So this is kind of an outline of what's taken from the battle. Um, We see this in verse 32 through 35, the outline of the numbers. So what they take in verse 32, and it's up here, 675,000 sheep, 72,000 cattle, 61,000 donkeys, and 32,000 women that are taken into Israel from the battle. That is a massive amount of spoil, particularly animals and people that are taken from Midian. So the way that they do this is they divvy it up between those who went to battle, the 12,000, and they give one out of 500 of each category to the Levites, or the priests rather. That would be 675 sheep, 72 cattle, 61 donkeys, 32 persons. Israel, who did not go to battle, get the other half, and one out of every 50 goes to the Levites. So the spoil would have been distributed among Israel, those who went out to battle, the priests, the Levites, it would have expanded the economy of the nation uh, quite a bit, and we'll deal with some lessons from that as we go on. So again, 1 through 12, we see the battle. 13 through 24 is where they bring everything to Moses, and there needs to be a purging and purifying of what they brought. And then 25 to 54, there's a dividing of the spoil. I just want to briefly bring up two lessons that I think are important from this. And lesson number one, I think, relates to Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 8. Keep a marker in the book of Numbers. Um, We're obviously going to come back there uh, for the next chapter. But God calls us to take a violent vengeance against sin. And I think it can be difficult to think about that, kind of like we've talked about in Leviticus, that a lot of concepts that we have in the New Covenant are intangible. And a lot of what we see in the Old Testament are more tangible visceral illustrations of really things that still remain very relevant for us. And so Colossians 3, I think, gets to our spiritual battle that Jesus leads us in and calls us into. And again, the idea is God calls us to take a violent vengeance against sin and with putting to death every remnant of sin. And I think in Colossians 3, what we see is God's encouragement is often to take that vengeance against sin much farther than we often do take it. Colossians 3, 5 through 8. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead 
to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. So back in verse 5, the New American Standard translation that I'm reading from um, does not give the proactive, instructive sense that every other translation gives to the command there. So ESV, New King James, um, every other translation tends to read verse 5 as, therefore put to death the members of your earthly body, immorality, impurity. The idea is these are things that we need to violently and aggressively put away. And look at the first thing on the list. Immorality and impurity, passion, the very things from Numbers chapter 25 that were the reason why God was taking this jealous vengeance on the Midianites. And if you look at verse 7, just like the sin of Peor, these are things we once walked in. And it's as if God is saying, you need to now go back and you need to see the things that were incurring God's wrath in your life. You need to go back and take vengeance on those things that were endangering your relationship with God and your ability to have closeness with God. And then verse 8. The Colossians, by the implication of the book, seem like they're newer Christians. And it's like he's saying, so there are these bigger things, but even the remnants of these things, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech, even these extensions of immorality, greed, evil desire, passion, the remnants need to be put away as well. So the idea is we need to take God's vengeance against sin as far as he calls us to. And further in Colossians, that equips us to find renewal in the Lord, peace and thankfulness and joy to heal from the trauma of sin. So verse 11 kind of deals with this in Colossians 3, that all of this relates to this renewal of being transformed from who we were apart from God and being renewed into the image of Christ. Verse 12 gets to how this equips us to put on a heart of compassion and kindness and love and forgiveness. Verse 14, putting on love is the perfect bond of unity. Verse 15, it equips us to gain the peace of Christ for it to rule in our hearts. Verse 15 and 16 and 17 deal with thankfulness again and again. Verse 15 at the end of the verse and be thankful. Verse 16, we're to sing with thankfulness in our hearts to God. Verse 17, as we do all things in word or deed in the name of the Lord Jesus, we're giving thanks through him to God the Father. So the idea is, with putting away sin and putting it to death, that equips us for something. To be purified, to be renewed, to be equipped to bring things to God and to be healed from the trauma that sinful activity does into our lives and in our hearts. Lesson number two. Fighting the Lord's battle greatly enriches our relationship with him and with each other. We won't look at both of these passages, but there's a similarity between them. We're going to look at James chapter 1. Both of them deal with how endurance equips us to grow in our relationship with God and enriches our relationship with God. James chapter 1, and I'll read verses 2 through 8. James 1, 2 through 8. Consider all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect results, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without a reproach, and it will be given to him. 
but he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought to not to expect to receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. What is endurance and being made perfect worth? What is wisdom worth? You know, you've probably heard or said yourself that if you pray for wisdom, what are you to expect? Trials. Now, I've heard, I think I've heard this more than once. I know I've heard it at least once. I've heard someone say that, they heard someone say that, that if they pray for wisdom, then they should expect trials. And they kind of laughed and said, well, I stopped praying for wisdom because I didn't want those trials. And sometimes someone says something, just it sticks with you. And you can't help but ponder it. Is wisdom worth so little that to pay the price of a trial, it's not worth it? We've got to fight the Lord's battles. And if we fight those battles, God will enrich our relationship with him. And if, if we value what God values, then if we have to pay the price of patience or enduring some difficulty or striving to do God's will and finding greater courage or hope in the Lord so that we endure and grow from it, if we value that like God does, then any price we have to pay is worth it. And we just have to learn to value what God values, right? So when we fight the Lord's battles, it's not as if we're going to be gaining earthly riches as Israel did. But I want you to think, what would those riches be for? Why would they, what would they use them for? Those animals were sacrificial animals. They would have equipped the nation to have a greater relationship with God, with the priests, with the Levites. It would have jump-started their ability to focus on holiness as a nation when they go into Canaan. The Levites and the priests would have been more equipped to do their work. And all of these things would give the nation the tools that they needed to also be evangelistic to the nations around them, right? So I don't think it was to make the nation just, you know, dwell in greed and what they had, but it was to equip the nation particularly for their relationship with God. This is where Hebrews relates. So Hebrews also is dealing with Christians not despising the discipline of the Lord, to not grow weary, to not lose heart. And he mentions as God disciplines us, in the moment it does not seem to be joyful, but afterwards it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. Is it worth it? And what does righteousness equip us for? What does proven character and endurance and wisdom equip us for? It equips us to serve each other, to be more effective in evangelism, to be more effective in the way that we love each other, to know God. Is it worth it if we've got to fight some battles to gain those things? Again, the idea is God is a rewarder of those who seek him, but we need to see how that reward is related to our relationship with God. Um already went into that, what these resources equip us for. So we'll get into chapter 32. So go back to Numbers 32. After fighting this battle, again, they're, they're on the border of Canaan, and they're in the territory of Moab and in the area where they had previously conquered Sihon and Og and those nations. And Reuben and Gad and half the tribe of Manasseh, which isn't mentioned until verse 33, it's the first mention of the half tribe of Manasseh, Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they appeal to Israel's leaders to allow them to stay in the territory of the Jordan. Um, I'll read verses 1 through 5 here to introduce the chapter. And this is an area, again, they'd conquered this area. 
They were already kind of living there, and here's what these tribes request. Now, the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad had an exceedingly large number of livestock. So when they saw the land of Jazer and the land of Gilead, that it was indeed a place suitable for livestock, the sons of Gad and the sons of Reuben came and spoke to Moses and to Eleazar the priest and to the leaders of the congregation, saying, Adaroth, Dibon, Jazer, Nimrah, Heshbon, Elelah, Sebam, Nebo, and Baan, the land which the Lord conquered before the congregation of Israel, is a land for livestock, and your servants have livestock. They said, If we have found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants as a possession. Do not take us across the Jordan. So just like to visualize this and how much territory they're talking about here, on the left side, starting at the bottom, kind of that grayish, pinkish area, Simeon and Judah, the border there extending to Edom, that goes all the way up to Dan in the far north. Um, you have Asher and Naphtali in the far north. Well, my mistake. Dan later, they didn't conquer that territory, so later they were in the north, but Dan was supposed to be on the west, just minor thing. Um, but you'll notice that the territory on the east is more than half the size of the territory on the west and was not a part of the promise God made. Everything that God had promised Abraham and the nation up to this point was all on the western side of the Jordan. So what I've highlighted there with Manasseh at the top, Gad in the middle, and Reuben on the bottom, none of that was initially promised. And the problem is going to arise because of verse 5, they make the appeal to not be taken across the Jordan. And this is where Moses is angry in response. So I'll read 6 through 15. But Moses said to the sons of Gad and the sons of Rumid, Shall your brothers go to war while you yourselves sit here? Now why are you discouraging the sons of Israel from crossing over into the land, which the Lord has given them? This is what your fathers did when I sent them from Kadesh Barnea to see the land. For when they went up to the valley of Eshkol and saw the land, they discouraged the sons of Israel so that they did not go into the land which the Lord had given them. So the Lord's anger burned in that day, and he swore, saying, None of the men who came up from Egypt, from twenty years old and upward, shall see the land which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, for they did not follow me fully, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and the Kezanite, and Joshua, the son of Nun, for they have followed the Lord fully. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel, and he made them wander in the wilderness 40 years until the entire generation of those who had done evil in the sight of the Lord was destroyed. Now behold, you have risen up in your father's place, a brood of sinful men, to add still more to the burning anger of the Lord against Israel. For if you turn away from following him, he will once more abandon them in the wilderness, and you will destroy all these people. Moses is a little upset. <laughs> but you see why, right? What they've requested is to stay on the eastern side, the land not promised. And what's going to be the consequences? You notice in verse 9, um, well, verse 7 and 9. In verse 7, he's saying, you are going to discourage the people of Israel. And verse 9, you're going to do this just like they were discouraged in the previous generation 40 years ago. Now, in 16 through 32, I'm not going to read this section, but just to summarize it, in verse 16, they approach Moses again, and they actually come to an agree agreeable compromise. And so they mention that they're going to build places to live in that eastern territory. In verse 18, they compromise and they agree that they will not stay there until the rest of Israel conquers the western side of the Jordan 
after they've helped Israel conquer that side of the Jordan, then they will return. Moses further qualifies this in verse 20. And he says, if you will arm yourselves before the Lord for the war, and all of you armed men cross over the Jordan before the Lord until he has destroyed his enemies out from before him, and the land is subdued before the Lord, then afterward you will return and be free of obligation toward the Lord and toward Israel, and this land shall be yours for a possession before the Lord. But if you, will, if you will not do so, behold, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. So this promise is fulfilled in Joshua later. Um, we get to see that in the book of Joshua. They do help Israel conquer their territory. Joshua dismisses them, telling them that they were faithful to their oath. But it seems like the idea is Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh were going to need to lead the conquest. So they were going to have to go before the Lord and before the people, and they were going to need to lead the conquest of Israel into the territory on the western side of the Jordan. And in verse 28 through 32, they come to an agreement about this before the Lord, and Moses charges Joshua to take note of this commitment that they've made. And in verse 31, the sons of Gad and the sons of Reuben answered and said, As the Lord has said to your servant, so we will do. We ourselves will cross over armed in the presence of the Lord into the land of Canaan, and the possession of our inheritance shall remain with us across the Jordan. And 33 through 42 is a distribution of the territory. A couple of lessons from this again. Lesson number one. Conflict that comes from expressing correction or concern cultivates needed growth and unity. I think something really important about this is although Moses was furious and reasonably upset with what they were requesting, the way that this ended up was Israel's boundaries expanded insurmountably. They received an enormous more of land, an enormous amount more of land. But it's because they were willing to listen. Moses was willing to express his concerns. They listened to those concerns and they came to an agreement as a result. I want you to remember Galatians and things we talked about from the book of Galatians about the corrective culture that a local church needs to have, right? You remember when Peter needed to be confronted by the Apostle Paul and how that actually helped cultivate not only good faith in the situation to restore those who were sinning, by showing favoritism to the Jews, but also how Paul used that as an illustration to further help the Galatian churches as well with corrections they needed to make as well. And so again, conflict that comes from expressing needed correction, or even if it's just concern, if those things are cultivated and communicated in lowliness and devotion to the Lord and toward our unity together, it only results in growth and further unity together. So something that could have torn them apart, discouraged them, and caused them to be divided from each other, it instead only fully, more fully unified them and caused growth in the boundaries of the nations as well. Lesson number two is we're either fighting in the Lord's battles with his people or we're acting against the Lord. I don't know how this would have went if they would have refused to come to an agreement with Moses they wouldn't have listened but I don't imagine it would have ended well. You know, something was going to be done as Moses was very clearly communicating. Something was going to be done against the nation or against these particular parts of the nation to punish them. But the idea is if they weren't going to go into the land with Israel, then they were fighting against them. Luke 11:23. 23. 
Jesus said, He who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters. And I want to finish the lesson looking at Philippians chapter 1, 27 through 30. And just think about some final points and applications uh, from Numbers 32. Philippians 1, 27 through 30. And again, just how we're called to strive together and work together, to fight together for the faith of the gospel with one mind and one spirit. Philippians 1, 27 through 30. It says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflicts which you saw in me and now here to be in me. So something that I heard um, growing up that I think is relevant to this point is that there are sins of omission and sins of commission. So a sin of commission would be like we do something that God has forbidden. You know, like sexual sin would fall into this category. We've done something that God has said not to do. That would be like a sin of commission. I think what can be a little bit harder to pin down are sins of omission. And this is where God has told us to do something. He's given us a direction or a command. And instead of participating in that, we either don't do it at all or don't even consider it or think about it. And is it possible to be guilty of a sin of omission because we're not striving to work together with God's people. We're not striving with one mind or one spirit for the faith of the gospel. And I want you to think, why, why did Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh initially want to just stay on the eastern side? They had already gotten enough for them. You know, again, the situation was resolved, I think, righteously. But I think initially Moses was justified in his anger and there was a really serious problem that needed to be addressed, something critical that had to be resolved. Reuben, Gad, and some of Manasseh felt that they already attained enough. But what about their brethren? What about the battles that still needed to be fought? What about the impact or the discouragement even that their lack of participation would have on those who still needed to fight. And so I think spiritual laziness can be a really serious problem. And I think that only comes because of feeling like I've attained enough. I've gotten far enough. What I've gotten right now, for me, for me it's enough. But God wants us to think about other people. He wants us to think about like Leviticus, people who may be struggling with spiritual battles, that they need our help and our encouragement to overcome. There's a sense where we are called to be so involved with each other that it can be truthfully said we are striving together, not just in work, but in spirit, in attitude, and in mind. And so again, the danger of discouragement can come in maybe not because of what we are doing in terms of, again, a sin of commission, but it may come in the form of just what I'm not doing and how that may discourage those who are working the hardest. As we conclude the lesson, I just want you to think, 
if we can see that maybe there is a problem of a lack of participation, would it be right to strongly express concern for that lack of participation? I think that can be more difficult, and I think in dealing with spiritual problems, to me, it's easier to deal with the sins of commission, where someone's doing something, it's very clearly sinful, but it can be a lot harder to deal with sins that aren't so apparent because they don't involve some clear sinful activity. But I think these are things that with Numbers 32, God confronts us to take very seriously and to be willing to communicate about those things and to work together to resolve those things. So that's Numbers 31 and 32. I hope that some of the lessons we pulled out or even just the events themselves can stick in your mind and equip you in this coming week and help you to appreciate the richness of what's in the book of Numbers much more as we go through it. Um, So Lord willing, uh, next week is December, so we'll finish the book, Lord willing, next week. Um, And I hope you found our journey through Numbers to be as encouraging and uh, impactful and challenging as I found it to be. So if you're here this morning and in some way God's word has convicted you that you need to bring something forward before the church, either if it's a need of encouragement or a confession of sin and a need to make things right and to seek help, guidance from God's people here. Um, We exist in big part to fight those battles together and to not be isolated or to feel alone in those things. And so if you're here this morning and you see that you do need to make something known in that regard, please don't hide it. Know that we're fighting battles together and God calls us to strive together for that very purpose. So if there is any need, please bring it forward while we stand and sing our invitation song.